is our prophecy update, weekly Bible prophecy update that we've been doing for a number of years now. And uh, second service, which will be live streamed at 11.15 a.m. Hawaii time, is the sermon. It's a verse by verse study. Currently we're in Second Peter. Lord willing, today we will finish chapter 1 of Second Peter. And we're going to look at how it is, the way it is, and perhaps more importantly, why it is that Jesus makes Himself real to us. You know, the prayer I'm sure doubtless you've prayed, Lord, reveal Yourself to me. Make Yourself real to me. That's a prayer He answers. And we're going to talk about that second service. Now, for those of you online that are watching by way of YouTube or Facebook, we would encourage you to go directly to the website, jdfarag.org. There you will find the uncensored entirety of today's update. So what I want to do today, and I hope that today's update will be an encouragement to you. Uh, at this, the start of a new year in 2023. Uh, who knows how cool would that be if this was our last year here? Okay, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> but what I want to talk with you about today is how the devastation in the world presently can actually serve as the motivation for our final destination in eternity. And here's how I get there. As evil waxes worse in this world, not our home, it can have the much needed effect of turning us to Jesus and our eternal home. If you were to ask me what I thought was one of the best things that's ever happened to us as last days Christians, my answer would be divine devastation. How's that for a perky introduction? Let me explain. God is allowing this, what I'll call divine devastation in the world today, to not only fulfill Bible prophecy, but also the purpose of Bible prophecy. And here's why. Adversity, affliction, and devastation loosen our ever-tightening grip on this world and the things of this world. What follows are just a smattering of the numerous and voluminous passages and prophecies that speak to this powerful, life-changing truth. I know that's kind of a big and bold way to introduce this. And please know that I spent a considerable amount of time kind of abbreviating this. There are so many passages of Scripture, so many prophecies in Scripture that speak to this. And I just want to share with you some of my favorites, beginning with Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. In times of prosperity, be joyful, but in times of adversity, consider this. God has made one as well as the other, so that no one can discover what the future holds. In other words, God has allowed both prosperity and adversity. Maybe you're here today or watching online, and it's a time of prosperity for you. We hate you, but no, enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was not a... Um, but if you're here today or watching online and you're going through a time of adversity, know this, consider this, God has allowed one alongside of the other. He's allowed both for this purpose. 
to get us to stop and consider that our future is uncertain. That we cannot keep going as if everything will always be good. In other words, we don't know what the future holds, but as one so aptly said it, we know who holds the future. Now when is it that we come to that realization? When is it that we will stop and consider? Is it not when adversity strikes? And by the way, uh, it's when, not if. I wish it said if, by chance, possibly it should, you know, happen that adversity. No, when, when adversity strikes. See, in times of prosperity, when times are good, we're just going about our lives and praise the Lord. And it shows up in our prayer lives. Oh, Lord, bless this, bless me, bless them, bless that. In Jesus' name, amen. And then, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Anyway, uh, sorry, that was a flashback of a song that I downloaded, I guess, off of iTunes or whatever. But when adversity strikes, well, my prayer life changes dramatically, doesn't it? It's not you know, bless this, bless that. It's, oh Lord. Oh, now I got your attention. See, I've got your attention now with the adversity that I could not otherwise have in times of prosperity. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that it's in affliction, devastation, adversity, trials, difficulties, pain, suffering. That's when God has our undivided attention. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 119. He actually says the same thing twice in a different way. First in verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, it wasn't until you afflicted me. And, and before you afflicted me, man, I was just going about, going my own way, the wrong way, going astray. And then you brought the affliction. You allowed the adversity. Now you've got my attention. Now I keep your word. Now a few verses later in verse 71, he actually takes it even further and said, it was a good thing. It was a hard thing, but it was a good thing. He says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's been said that God comforts the afflicted, and that's true. Praise the Lord for that. But so too does God afflict the comfortable. And we do err greatly when we get too comfortable in this world, not our home. And it's like the Lord is saying, I'll use, I'll take one for the team. I'll use myself as an example. JD, what are you doing? You're uh, getting a little bit too comfortable down there. Um, you're coming up here pretty soon. Why are you getting too comfortable down there? You're digging your roots down too deep in the temporal soil of this world. I'm going to have to, um, Gabriel, Michael, get over here. Affliction. We need an order of affliction, a side of adversity, and uh, a double order of tribulation, because he's, get, <laughs> he's getting too comfortable. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. There's an obscure proverb, chapter 20, verse 30. I don't like it, if I can just be so candid with you. Listen to this. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, Ugh. as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Devastating blows, and I mean it hurts deeply, but it's a good hurt. 
It's a good devastation, a divine devastation, a good blow. Why? Because of what it accomplishes. What does it accomplish? Well, it has this effect of cleansing me, purifying me, stopping me dead in my tracks on this path that I was going. There is a way that seems right to a man but in the end it leads to death. And God loves us so much, He cannot continue to allow us to go in that direction, because He knows the end from the beginning. So He's going to do everything and stop at nothing to stop us, so that we'll consider. And then comes the blow, the devastation. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 17, I love this. He says, for momentary light affliction. Now, I, I'm not very fond of those two words in the context of affliction. Momentary, light, really? Affliction is producing. Stop right there. Wait, affliction's actually productive? not destructive? Yeah. No, see, we think it's destructive. God, why are you doing this to me? No, I'm not doing anything to you. I'm doing something for you. I'm producing something in you. Well, Lord, why do you have to use affliction to do it? Because that's the only way. Oh, believe you me, if God could use prosperity, to produce the same results that adversity produce? <laughs> I'm certain He would do that, but it doesn't work like that. I wish it did. So the affliction is producing for us, watch this, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Did you catch that? So here's the affliction. Affliction has an appointment with you, and it, and it, keep, it always keeps the appointment. <laughs> and it shows up right on time. Sometimes it's early. So here's affliction. Hi, I'm affliction. I'm here to produce an eternal weight of glory, because your eyes are on this world and the things of this world. And the only way I can get your eyes off this world and on Him for eternity is vis-a-vis -vis affliction. Oh, it's, again, these are this is an abbreviated list. There are so many more, but they all have at the core this, this common denominator. Adversity and affliction and devastation are good because of what they accomplish. God is going to allow it, because God is going to take us out of this world soon and very soon. But if we're holding on too tightly to it, it's going to be a difficult thing to do it. And we're not looking up. Why? Because our treasure is down here. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We're too invested in this world. Why? Why are you invested in this world? You're not going to be here very long. It'd be like renting a house and remodeling it. You got a one-year lease, you're remodeling it? What is the matter with you? I know we laugh, but we do that with life, right? We're only renting. We're only passing through. We're nomads, pilgrims, foreigners, just traveling through in the world, not of the world. The world is not your friend. Don't be friends with the world. In fact, unfriend them on social media. <laughs> Block the world. 
the world sends you a friend request, say, no, I'm blocking you. I'm not friends with the world, because James says, if I am, I'm an adulterer, if I'm friends with the world. Now, the reason I'm starting out this way is because Scripture paints a devastating prophetic picture of the world at the time of the end. And here's what's sad. It's not just the prophetic picture of the world, it's the church in the world. Or even better said, it's the world in the church. And as such, the devastation in the church in the last days and the world in the end times is a sign of the times painting for us and pointing to us just how close we are to the pre-tribulation rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. See, the problem God has, not that God has problems, <laughs> but the problem, well, we're the problem, right? The problem God has is He created us for eternity, not for time. And He wants us to be ready for when He returns for us, but He doesn't seem to have us on the same <laughs> airplane. I shouldn't use that as an Arab, but for lack of a better metaphor, <laughs> same page, sheet music, whatever you want to use. So how's he going to get us there? Because see, throughout and replete in Scripture are passages and prophecies after passages and prophecies, of which we're going to look at a couple, that describe and even paint on the canvas of this temporal world a devastating picture of what it's going to look like. And the purpose of that is so that we'll look at that and go, wait a minute. It's like that now. This is really bad. That's the point. That's the purpose. Because see, when things are good down here, we're not thinking about up there. And conversely, when things are bad down here, <laughs> how many of, come on, let's be honest. When things are going good in your life, you're like, Lord, come soon. <laughs> Adversity strikes, devastation. Lord, come quickly, now, come quickly, Lord, now, today. Because I don't have the money for the bills that are due tomorrow. <laughs> Being honest, right? That's the whole point. That's the purpose. The purpose, if I can say it like this, is for God's people to fall out of love with the world, to become disenchanted with the world, and in so doing, turn to Him, get our eyes on Him, look to Him. Hey, we're not going to be here very much longer. I truly believe with all of my heart that the rapture of the church is sooner than any of us could possibly imagine. Well, let's get back to this devastating picture. I know this is real perky again, but the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in his first letter, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 1 says, the Spirit clearly or explicitly says, that in later times, the last days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, doctrines of demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. This is to the church. This isn't to the world. 
Why would the world abandon the faith? They're not in the faith. They're not professing faith. This is speaking of and painting a picture of the last day's church. That's what it's going to look like. They're going to abandon the faith. It gets worse in his second letter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view, and I want you to listen very carefully to this delineation, in view of His appearing and His kingdom. The appearing is the rapture, the kingdom is the second coming, thy kingdom come. Did you catch that? The re in view of this, in light of the rapture and the second coming, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. I'm working on that one. And careful instruction. And here's why, Timothy, here's why, Christian, for the time will come, that time is now and here, when man will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. What a devastating portrait of the last day's church. No longer putting up with sound preaching, sound doctrine, the preaching of the word. And they're going to turn away and they're going to go away and they're going to go down the street to this other church that tells them what their ears are itching to hear. And if I'm not mistaken, we're given the detail that this is going to be in, quote, a great number. In other words, most of the Christians in the last days are going to do this. They don't want to hear what I'm talking about today. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to go listen to a Bible prophecy update about devastation. The guy down the street's talking about love. And God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And you just got to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. I'm going to go with that one. Okay. See ya. Wouldn't want to be you. Revelation 3, seven letters to seven churches, the church of Philadelphia in verse 7 through 11, is one of two churches of the seven for which there is no rebuke from the Savior. John, who's on the island of Patmos, is told to write, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. I know that you're just holding on. You've kept my word. I know you're just hanging on to my word under extreme pressure to abandon it. And you've not denied my name, and I know that everyone else has. But you've held on. You're barely hanging on weary, with little strength, but you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. 
Just hang on a little bit longer. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. This is a picture of a church in the last days that is just barely hanging on, persevering. I also, because you have kept my command, and thank God it's a command, because God will never command us to do anything that He will not also empower us to do, because He can't not do that. That's inconsistent with who He is. God's commands are not burdensome, John says. We want this to be a command. Because when God commands us or calls us to do something, His callings, His commands are His enablings. He's also going to package it with the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the command that He's commanding us, to take heed to the call to which He's calling us. See, when you bring it into its proper place under the heading of a command, you have the Holy Spirit now enabling you and empowering you to obey that command. What's the command? To persevere. You're persevering. And I also will keep you from the, listen, hour of trial, tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world. That's the seven year tribulation. To test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Not that someone is going to take a crown you already have, but there is the propensity for us to not have a crown that we could have had. The command to persevere. And because you have kept, obeyed the command to persevere, I'm going to keep you from the hour of tribulation. That's the pre-tribulation rapture. But notice the connection again. Affliction, adversity, difficulty, trials devastation. That's the catalyst. That's the catalyst. And that's the prophetic picture that we have. This prophetic picture of the last days church is evidenced by this devastating Pew Research Center report on December 22nd, which at first read, you almost get the impression that a significant percentage of Americans actually believe that we're living in the end times, when at the beginning of the report they say, and I quote, periods of catastrophe and anxiety, such as the coronavirus pandemic, have historically led some people to anticipate that the destruction of the world as we know it, the end times, is near. So far, so good. This thinking, still quoting, often has a religious component that draws on sacred scripture. Again, so far, so good. In Christianity, for example, these beliefs include expectations that Jesus will return to earth after or amid a time of great turmoil. Can I add the word devastation? Catastrophic devastation. Again, so far so good, right? Are we good? That wasn't very convincing, but that's all right. We'll just move on. So what's your problem, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the problem. When you get towards the end of the article, there's a conspicuous shift from the statistics of Americans to the statistics of evangelicals, which is misleading at best and deceptive at worst when they say, and I quote, 
About seven in ten evangelicals say either that they are not sure Jesus will return during their lifetime, or that Jesus will definitely or probably not return during their lifetime. Give me a moment. <laughs> I mean, that's, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, 70% or more? No. No, I, be I believe in God. Oh, that's great. So do the demons and they tremble. Congratulations. Well, I believe Jesus is coming. I just don't believe that it's going to be in my lifetime. I don't think it's anytime soon. I think we've got another... <laughs> I can't even go there. I'm sorry. We, yeah, never mind. Okay, let me stay on message here. What's the takeaway from this devastating report? And it is devastating. Most evangelicals don't believe Jesus will return during their lifetime. That's a problem. Because throughout Scripture in my Bible, everyone for the last well nigh 2,000 plus years thought it was in their lifetime, chief of whom is the Apostle Paul himself, who would say to the Thessalonians, we who are still alive, he thought it was going to be in his lifetime, by God's design, so that at any time, the trumpet could sound, and the dead in Christ can rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured up, to meet them in the air and be with the Lord. And you don't believe that? Well, This may be devastating news for the church today, but it's certainly not surprising news about the church today. Again, Bible prophecy tells us that this is what it will look like at the time of the end. And dare I say, <laughs> this is exactly what it now looks like. Why? because we're now at the end. This is the end. Well, what are, you, what are you saying, Pastor? I don't know how much clearer I can be. This is it. This is how it ends. This is the end. <laughs> this sign on this picture, the end is nigh. Not a word we use, near would be a more uh, commonly used word. The end is near. And of course, they've got to have the sandwich board guy. And they always have the kook, you know, the, the weirdo that's, you know, carrying the sign. And I think I'm going to get a sign and go to Waikiki and just hold it up. But it won't say the end is near. It'll say the end is here, because it is, because it is. All right. Now, this begs the question of at whose feet does one lay the blame for the devastating state of the church in the last days? While the carnal Christian is certainly culpable, as we just read in First and Second Timothy, James in chapter 3, verse 1, makes it very clear in no uncertain terms that in the end it's the pastors. We as teachers of God's Word and pastors of God's flock will be held to a much stricter judgment in the end. 
It's arguably even stronger concerning the watchmen from the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Listen to this. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Warn them. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, verse 19, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. I want to share with you a quote from A.W. Tozier. Though written long ago, it's so apropos for today. It comes from a devotional titled, A New Type of Preacher. Here's what he says. If Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means than any now being used. If the church in the second half of this century, speaking of the last century, is to recover from the injuries, interesting, injuries she suffered in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor the smooth-talking pastoral type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All these have been tried and found wanting. Another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be of the old prophet type. I like that. The growl. you got to say it with a growl. The old prophet type. A man who has seen visions of God and has heard a voice from the throne. When he comes, and I pray God there will be not one but many, he will stand in flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict, denounce, and protest in the name of God, and will earn the hatred and the opposition of a large segment of Christendom. I want to be that man. Such a man is likely to be lean. Well, that counts me out. <laughs> Rugged, there's the growl, rugged, blunt, blunt spoken, and a little bit angry with the world. He will love Christ and the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of one and the salvation of the other. But he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. Oh, would to God that like Tozer prays and says, there would be not one but many 
and that I would be deemed worthy to be counted among such a man who cares not what the world thinks, who has an audience of one. Well, if you'll kindly allow me to, I <laughs> need to bluntly <laughs> and with a little bit of anger with the world protest as it relates to the devastating and hopefully motivating truth. But in order to do that, we'll go ahead at this time and end the live stream and redirect you to the website. Once again, I deem it necessary to preface what I'm about to say by lovingly and humbly saying that this is only for those who have ears to hear. I'll begin with what two pastor friends of mine sent me, which was the same article on the same day from Lifestyle News on December 19th about Trump hosting a gala for homosexual Republicans at his Mar-a-Lago resort. Here are some quotes. Trump in his speech proclaimed, we are fighting for the gay community and we are fighting and fighting hard with the help of many of the people here tonight in recent years, our movement has taken incredible strides. The strides you've made here is incredible." Close quote. The article continues, and I quote, according to Politico, Carrie Lake employed foul language to address the crowd, saying, quote, we just had such a huge movement going into Election Day to watch these people, these evil, uh, it rhymes sort of with mustards. Can I say that here? That's what she says. Still quoting to watch them steal this election in broad daylight. And if they think they're going to get away with it, they messed with the wrong. It rhymes with stitch. Are we good? We're okay. That's quoting Kerry Lake. Now, let me hasten to say, and you can actually find on YouTube and our website, a powerful testimony that we had one night about the power of a praying parent for a prodigal who came out of this lifestyle. And like the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church says to them, he lists homosexuality and he says, as some of you were translated God loves the homosexual, and there is hope for the homosexual and the lesbian. That's not my intent to go any further in that regard, but I think it did need to be said. So for well nigh five years now, from back in 2019, and then particularly into 2020, up to the present time now in 2023, I've continued to genuinely and sincerely ask friends of mine, many of which are pastors, the following question. You see it there on the screen. Is Trump friend or foe? I say genuinely and sincerely because personally in my own life and ministry, if Trump is friend, nothing makes sense. However, if Trump is foe, everything makes sense. Sadly, I've come to the conclusion that it's the latter. 
And if you'll hear me out, I'll explain why. The deal of the century that divides Jerusalem makes sense if he's foe. The Abraham Accords that are a precursor to the prophecy in Daniel 9.27, specifically concerning peace with many for a seven-year covenant. It makes sense if he's foe. The COVID lockdowns and ensuing Operation Warp Speed, which, by the way, in his own words, he's very vehement about not getting enough credit for being the father of the so-called vaccine. Operation Warp Speed. If he's friend, that makes no sense. If he's foe, oh, that makes sense. Doubtless you know that people are just dying left and right. If he's foe, it makes sense. And then lastly, the aforementioned declaration of support for homosexuals. It makes sense if he's foe. It does not make sense if he's friend. Speaking of friend or foe, I regrettably must also include one Benjamin Netanyahu in that category, by virtue of his recent interview with Jordan Peterson. I have to confess that I was stunned to learn a portion of this interview was edited out, and I believe it was at about the 53-minute mark. I believe this because I spent a couple of hours researching it to find the censored portion that was presumably removed shortly after being published. I say presumably because thankfully there were several who recorded the entire video including the part they later cut out and posted it on other platforms. One such platform was Rumble. And I converted the speech to text and created the following transcript in which Netanyahu admits to the devastating truth that Israel was in effect Pfizer's lab by using their DNA database for the deadly COVID death shots. Here is that portion of the interview, and I'm going to read it verbatim. Netanyahu. We came out of COVID first. I described that in my book. My conversations with Albert Borla of Pfizer, and I persuaded him to give tiny Israel then the necessary vaccines to get us out first from the COVID. And the reason I could do that is because we have a database, 98%, a medical database. 98% of our population has digitized medical records and a little card. And anywhere you go, in any hospital in Israel, north, south, doesn't make any difference, boom, punch it in, and you know everything about this patient for the last 20 years. I said, we'll use that to tell you whether these vaccines, what do they do to people? Not individual people, not with their individual identities, but statistically, what does it do to people with, you know, with meningitis? What does it do to people with high blood pressure? What is it, you know, you want to know that? So Israel became, if you will, the lab for Pfizer. And that's how we did it. We got it out and we gave the information to the world, not only and published in medical magazines and so on. That's our database we have. I intend to bring on that base database 
of medical personal medical records for the entire population. A genetic database, genomes, okay? Give me a saliva sample, volunteer, but I'm sure most people would do it. Maybe we'll pay them. Now we have a genetic record on a medical record of a robust population. You have to have diversified populations. We have people from 100 lands. This is a very powerful engine. Now let pharma companies, let medical companies, let them run algorithms on this database, okay? I'm telling you right away, they'll give preference for a few years to Israeli firms, but you can create, and then to the world, but you can create, you know, a biotechnological industry that is unheard of right now, unheard of, unimagined even, and these are just examples. We can become, stave off Iran, become a light unto the nations, close quote. Oh, I see why they edited that out. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jordan Peterson uh, is a well-known intellectual, millions of subscribers on YouTube. Now when I first saw this, I mean, I was like, no way, way. So I started researching it, vetting it for its authenticity, because if this is authentic, then this is a game changer. And sure enough, I'm looking at the logo of the edited out portion on the bottom of the screen. I'm looking at what Netanyahu is wearing. I'm looking at the backdrop. And I went back and I watched it over and over again. I copied the transcript. I searched it. I read it over and over again. And I pinpointed again that 53 minute mark. And that's when they cut it out. And that's why they cut it out. How devastating is this? This is Israel. This is Israel. Well, I'll bring it to an end the way we began, and simply say that this divine devastation can be the motivation for our final destination. Our final destination is heaven, eternity future. This is why for many years now we've been doing these weekly prophecy updates. It's also why we end with the gospel, the good news of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. It's also why we do the ABCs of salvation, which is nothing more than a simple explanation of salvation. Well, what's the gospel? The gospel simply means good news. Your debt has been paid, you're free to go. That's what the word gospel means. What are the ABCs of salvation? Well, again, it's just a, and please don't make it a formula. It's just a way, a simple childlike way, something to equip you with, should God ever give you the profound privilege of sharing the gospel with someone, bringing someone into your path. You've got a track to run on, a template to use. The A is for admit or acknowledge that you are a sinner, because unless and until you do, why would you be interested in the Savior? Well, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. Well, that's good. Have you ever hated someone? You're a murderer. How about that? Well, what are you talking about? Well, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. You're a sinner. And this is Romans 3.10. There's no one righteous. No one's good. You might be good, but you'll never be good enough. Not even one. Save one, Jesus the Christ. And here's why, Romans 3.23. All, key word, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
By the way, that's what the word sin means. Falling short, missing the mark, missing the bullseye. Well, I've hit the bullseye before. Yeah, but you have to hit the bullseye every time. Well, I, I missed it one time. You're a, you're a sinner. You missed the mark. You fell short. That's an archery term. We were all born sinners, which is why we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Romans 6.23, this is where it gets very interesting, because we've just been found guilty. We tried to plead not guilty. That didn't work out so well. We're guilty as charged. So now we've got to enter the sentencing phase. Well, what's the sentence? Well, it's the death sentence, for the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now watch this. We've all been sentenced to death. Bad news. That's like really bad news, right? I mean, you've not just ruined my day, you've ruined my whole life, sentencing me to death. So here I am in the courtroom of the universe with the judge of eternity, and I've just been found guilty. And the judge says, I sentence you to death. Wow. This is bad. Yeah, it's really bad. But as they're about to carry you out and carry out the death sentence, in walks a man, no ordinary man. He's the God man fully God, fully man. His name, the only name given among men, whereby we must be saved. His name is Jesus. He walks into that courtroom. He says, stop, hold everything. I'll die for him. I'm like, you will? Yeah. And the, the judge looks at you and goes, oh, because he's a local judge, remember? <laughs> oh, good news, brah. <laughs> I better stop right there while I'm ahead. You're free to go. Your death penalty, your death sentence has been paid. This man is going to die in your stead. Good news. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That's the gospel, man. That's the A. Here's the B. Very central belief. It's actually not just as simple as ABC. It's as simple as B. Leave. <laughs> For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would. Thank you. <laughs> We're almost done. Hang in there. Belief would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Believe. Put your trust in Him. Believe in Him. And then what comes as a result of believing in Him, calling upon Him? And that's the C. Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's why. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And lastly, Romans 10, 13 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. That's the gospel. Jesus was crucified instead of us, for us, paying in full, purchasing the price of the gift that He offers us as eternal life. It's a gift. He paid for it, cost him his life. 
He offers us the gift that he paid for. We are not our own. We are purchased by a price. And he paid in full that price. And it is finished. That's good news. And so I would implore you, (laughs) if you've never called upon the name of the Lord, put your trust in him, believed in him. Today, please, Today is the day of salvation. Today, call on him while he may be found. Today's But God testimony comes from Hurley Combs, who writes, Dear JD, today I wanted to give you my own But God testimony. It might not be considered much, but it truly shows how God opens doors and will put you where he wants you as long as you trust him and follow him where and when he asks you to. Even before the pandemic started, I was a worker at Target. Ever since the pandemic, though, I could see how much darker the world was getting being on the front line living my life where I was being bullied, intimidated, threatened into doing things that I didn't agree with, even after objecting to them, whenever I was around people, didn't leave me in a good place. Especially when your workplace becomes hostile because of the people you have to interact with on a daily basis. In many people's eyes, it could easily be said that I let the fear of man rule my life, or at least my interactions with other Christians makes me think that I've been fighting a war all alone, being constantly beaten up, battered, left bloody and bleeding out. And it has required all the strength that God has given me just to stay living to this day. All this information is needed to understand the context of what God has done in my life. As everything was collapsing around me, and I was at my wit's end, and unsure if I could continue working at Target, I was given information that my local airport was needing officers with multiple different days needed to go through all the steps to get hired and the varying schedules week by week, every single day that I needed to complete the task, I was given a day off, which only God could have done that. The fact that all these events happened after the pandemic is further a sign of God's doing, as if I had found out and had been hired before the pandemic, then as an employee of the federal government, I'm fairly certain that I would have had to have been forced to either take the jab or be fired. I had already decided that if I was given that ultimatum, I would quit and trust in God to put me in a better place. If they could threaten people to take the jab by threatening their very livelihood, then they know they can take it even further when the mark comes around. And I wanted no part in showing the weakness that will be shown by others. Ever since I was hired on as an officer, I've been put in an environment where the Lord has been strengthening me and showing me how strong I can be without losing any part of me. He made me as I am. I know not exactly what he has planned for me, but with the strengthening he has been doing for me, I can say that he has put me in the spot he designed for me. This has been rather long winded, but I felt led to give this testimony to show how God can have plans that you can't see no matter what the pain suffering or tribulation. Can I just one one last time add the word devastation? (laughs) Someone is going through. And to always trust God in your heart, no matter the actions one takes, He always knows what goes on in your heart. Praise the Lord. Capone, come on up. Go ahead and please stand and we'll close in prayer and 
close in song. Father in heaven, loving heavenly Father, our Father which art in heaven, your name is hallowed, revered. Lord, how is it that we can even begin to possibly express to you this side of glory, how grateful we are to you for what you did for us, the price you paid for us. Lord, maybe now it's not fully grasped, but that day is coming very soon when we'll realize when we see you face to face and we see all of our loved ones oh there's no words lord there's no words lord thank you for salvation as our final destination. We give you all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor, Lord. All the glory do your holy name, Jesus. And Jesus, lastly, please come quickly. Please come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.